when data showed that ethnic minorities were more likely to fall severely ill and die from COVID-19, experts and pundits asked why. As we learned more through the course of the pandemic, it became increasingly clear that it's socioeconomic factors that contribute heavily to COVID outcomes. It's densely packed multi-generational households and jobs on the front line of retail, health and transport that have contributed to this divide. We've long known that where you live, who you live with, how you grew up and how much money you have can have long lasting consequences for your health. Those who live in polluted inner city neighborhoods where drug abuse may be rife are of course going to have different health outcomes compared to the residents of leafy suburban London. We've known this through the work of Sir Michael Marmot who gave his name to the landmark Marmot Review. But what do these findings mean for healthcare professionals and policymakers? Do doctors and nurses now also have to think about air pollution and green spaces? Is this holistic view of health helpful and indeed possible? I'm Kate Andrews, and in a special episode of The Spectator's Podcast, I'm going to be trying to answer this question with a panel of experts. We're joined by Charmaine Griffiths, head of the British Heart Foundation, by Chimney Bott, UK and Ireland managing director of the pharmaceutical company Novartis, which is kindly sponsoring this podcast, and by Sir Michael Marmot himself, who has been looking at this question in today's Britain. Welcome all. Michael, can you start by explaining why you think socioeconomic factors should be considered as a part of healthcare? Let's start with clearing up what tends to be a confusion. When you look at data from the OECD, the World Bank, most economists, they tend to equate health and healthcare. In fact, they run the two words together and they talk about spending on health when they don't mean spending on health, they mean spending on health care. And health care is very important when we get sick, but it's a relatively minor determinant of the level of health of the population. And that's really very important. So for in the US, for example, where they have a bizarre way of running their health care system and vast swathes of the population don't get access to health care, they tend to think of health inequalities as being largely due to inequalities in health care. In the UK, we know where by and large we have universal access free at the point of use. It's not inequalities in access to health care that lead to inequalities in health in the population. That's related to the conditions that make people sick in the first place, what I call the social determinants of health, the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age, and the fundamental structural drivers of those conditions. That's responsible for the health of populations and for the inequalities in health of populations. And Michael, I suppose that your points have been amplified by COVID, where mortality has been worse in poor, densely populated areas. So I said at the beginning of the pandemic, if it's like most pandemics, it will expose the underlying inequalities in society and amplify them. I, like a lot of other people, went back to Camus, the plague, and Camus said that The pestilence is a blight, but it also reveals the hidden corruption of society. 
at the time, I thought the word corruption was a bit strong. Uh, as things played out with the pandemic in Britain, I think corruption's quite apt. But my comment at the time was that the pandemic would expose the underlying inequalities in society and amplify them. And that's exactly what happened. If one of the key observations, if you classify people by where they live and classify where they live by degree of deprivation, pre-pandemic, there's a social gradient. The more deprived the area, the shorter the life expectancy the higher the mortality. And it's a social gradient. So when we talk about inequalities in health, it's not confined to poor health for the poor, but it's graded. People near the top have shorter life expectancy than those near the top. And it runs all the way from top to bottom. Then came the pandemic. And what we saw was the social gradient for mortality from COVID-19 was almost exactly parallel to the social gradient in mortality from all causes. In other words, the causes of inequalities in health and the causes of inequalities in COVID-19 overlap considerably. They're at the bottom three deciles of deprivation, there was some relative excess for COVID-19, which we think is related to frontline exposures and to living in overcrowded, possibly multi-generational households. But in general, you see the same social gradient. And then as I documented in my Build Back Fairer report in December, 2020, the steps we took to control the pandemic exaggerated those inequalities that higher income people who could work from home had no loss in income, the lower your household income, the greater the likelihood of your working in an industry that was shuttered and or having to go out and be exposed in frontline occupations. So there was increase in wealth at the high end, decrease in income and wealth at the low end. So a sharper social gradient in social and economic conditions. Charmaine, from the perspective of the British Health Foundation, what are some of the environmental factors that will impact a person's risk of heart disease? So as Michael just said, actually, there are many, many determinants of health. That includes, of course, your upbringing, the environment that you're exposed to from uh, being a child. We know that sadly, children who are born and, and grow up to be obese in their early years have a far, far higher chance of being obese adults. So there are so many factors that determine it. I guess at the moment, I'm really reflecting on, and we're reflecting as the British Heart Foundation, on the link between COVID-19 and increased risk of severe illness of death with people with heart circulatory disease and we're really reflecting on the fact that we've got so many um, significant risk factors we still have to tackle and just to share a couple we know that over a quarter of UK adults are obese and at higher risk of COVID but just generally of heart and circulatory disease and around the same proportion of high blood pressure putting them at uh, risk of dangerous heart attacks and strokes so those are just two simple risk factors and there are many many more smoking air pollution others that are part of someone's kind of complex, I guess, uh, profile of risk. Chinmay, the term population health is increasingly thrown around to describe much of what we've been talking about so far. Can you de-jargon that for us? I will try to de-jargon it. Uh, In my mind, population health very much focuses on tackling the underlying health of large groups of people. So far, we've always been talking 
as Michael mentioned earlier, about treating illness or sickness that exists within people. And population health is actually around how do we keep a large section of people healthy. It includes various elements that may or may not be medical treatments. But as we've been talking about, it also has lots and lots of socioeconomic determinants that go into it. But for me, the key word is around keeping a population healthy as opposed to treating them when they get sick. So I agree with what Jimmy said. I think of population health in two ways, and they're linked. One is simply if you look at the level of health of all of the individuals in the population and sum it up, you've got a measure of population health. But the second way of thinking about it goes back to Durkheim. The level of health of the population tells you something really rather important about the society, that the level of health, or as Durkheim would have put it, the rate of illness, uh, the rate is telling you something that's more than just the sum of individual population, the individual health status. So again, quoting Durkheim, the suicide rate is different from why one individual takes his or her own life. You know, they're, they're, they're disappointed in love, they're alone, socially isolated, depressed or whatever. But the suicide rate tells you something about society. And I think that's very important because looking at Britain over the last decade, the report that I did in, I published in February 2020, just before the pandemic, showed that in the decade from 2010, the rate of improvement in life expectancy was slower in the United Kingdom than in any other rich country except Iceland and the United States. The magnitude of health inequalities increased and life expectancy for the poorest people outside London actually went down. So I think that's telling us, rather than just simply counting up how many sick people there were and saying that's something about individual propensity to illness. It's telling us something about what happened to society over that decade. If health stopped improving, society stopped improving. If health inequalities got bigger, inequalities in society got bigger. If health for the poorest people got worse, living conditions for the poorest people got worse. So I think building on what Chinmay said, the population health is telling us something really rather important about the way we organize our affairs in society. And Chinmay, Michael just covered a whole host of areas of society there. Do you think it's even accurate to talk about this as healthcare, given what a wide ranging remit this could be? I think healthcare has a part to play in it. I mean, clearly it has aspects way beyond healthcare, whether it's housing, it's education, it's economic opportunity. And many of these actually have a much larger impact. But I do believe that the lens that healthcare affords us is to actually also just think about what is happening at the level of an individual's body. It helps us to actually measure certain things with distinction, and it also allows us to track progress, uh, specifically when we look at health indicators. But when we look at the determinants, clearly, they're way broader than just the health of an individual. Charmaine, 
a lot of this sounds like an innovative and fresh way to look at healthcare, and also it puts an emphasis on preventative healthcare, very important for keeping people healthy long term. But is there not a risk here that if we go down this route, it will mean prioritizing health above all else? For example, personal choices. If somebody, for example, who is obese wants to stick to their diet and accepts the higher risks of heart disease, isn't that their choice? A great question. And I think I wouldn't distinguish firstly between health and and wealth as a society. I think they're linked. I think we are in all of our decisions shaping the kind of society we want to be. And I think making choices that support people's health generally, we we know from many examples, has many other knock-on effects, whether they be economic or, or otherwise. And of course, people have the right to choose in their daily lives. I think one of the things that's perhaps a false argument in this debate around choice is that people have that choice already. We know that many people in socioeconomically deprived areas simply don't have the choice of balanced diets. It's not easy to take exercise and build that into their lives. It's not easy for them to create environments or have environments in which their children can be active. So I think the choice part, there's a false argument in here thinking that everyone has equal choice because they simply don't. And I think our challenge as a society is how do we engender an environment that makes sure that everybody has access to the same kind of healthy and simple choices. And that's why I think coming out of the, as we hope, starting to come out of the pandemic with an increased focus not only on personal health but what it takes to be um, healthy as a nation indeed as a globe is making us think slightly differently about how we organize ourselves how we approach complex problems in a more integrated way as an ecosystem so that we are giving everybody the level playing field in terms of making those choices. Charmaine there's some good evidence that if you know how to cook Healthy food is not so expensive. One of the problems is that people don't know how to put these ingredients together. Isn't one of the tough truths about population health is that if it doesn't start from a very young age and it doesn't start with the education process, it is much harder to encourage people to change behavior down the line. What does that mean for our education system now? But also, how do we reach out in a choice-centric way to adults who may have developed unhealthy habits over decades? So you're right, good habits start young, although it's always possible, of course, to change. I think what the question you just asked really highlights is that we need an integrated view and um, a really robust discussion about population health, actually. It's it's not sufficient just to look at health through, as uh, Chinmay and Michael have described, just a healthcare lens, nor indeed just through education or just through... Um, risk factors it is about us taking a holistic view of what we expect as a society for people's health and then looking at all of the intervention points that we can to do as best as we can by the people that it's designed to support so you're right education early is important so that people understand how to cook but also um, what choices to make and also educating people to be active and build that into their lives but also having a system and an environment that truly supports that not just tokenistically but truly supports everybody to make simple and healthy choices is is really important. Chin Mei, perhaps a lot of this sounds good in theory, but it also sounds suspiciously expensive, (laughs) especially when the tax burden is approaching a 70-year high. So where can companies like Novartis, the pharmaceutical industry, and the private sector step in and perhaps address some of these financial burdens? I think I would argue that some of the interventions that we need in order to address these deep-seated issues that we have in in population health 
may not be that expensive. Some of it is about actually education, information, starting early, and, and just making sure that public are making choices in an informed way as much as we can. Now, that's not perfect, but it doesn't need to be extremely expensive. The way we think about it is, again, you know, if I take cancer as an example, screening patients early, finding people at the early stages of cancer is far more cost-effective and in fact beneficial for the outcomes of the patient than waiting until people are at stage three or four of their disease where neither the outcome is better for the patients nor is the cost to the health system low. So I do think that it, there is a positive economic trade-off if done well, you know, as exemplified by the cancer example here, that if we work early and if we try and actually increase the level of awareness, you know, work on screening, we are able to not only lead to a healthier population, but also do that in a more cost-effective way. Chinmay, the last time we spoke in our previous episode for the Spectator podcast, we discussed the importance of patient data. Presumably here, data also reigns supreme. You'll need to collect all sorts of data about a person's lifestyle, their housing, their mental health, their diet, in order to tackle these issues of health holistically. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as Michael was referring to, and has also become very obvious in the case of the pandemic, some of these data sets are available. It's a question of actually putting them together. So when we look at health outcomes in, you know, cardiovascular health, and then we look at levels of depravity or socioeconomic status, we again see a very, very strong correlation. Through the pandemic, we know that we're able to actually get this data at a very granular level, possibly street by street, which I hope in the future allows us to target our interventions very, very specifically to groups and populations of people that can benefit from it and then start to address, begin to address these issues of health inequality and longer term health of society. Charmaine, how realistic is it to incorporate all of this into the NHS? Already the system is doing far more than it was originally designed to do. And oftentimes, especially in the winter, it can barely handle or indeed sometimes it just can't handle what it's already being asked to cover. So this would be yet another layer on top of a buckling system. So I don't think we can afford not to think about better application of data in healthcare. Um, we're really proud to have set up a, a BHF centre of data science that is specifically looking at how can we play our role in joining the dots between data sets and, and data users to improve cardiovascular health. And we are so convinced there's just massive potential as is everybody I think there's hardly an aspect of our lives at the moment uh, data and its application is not being thought of I think probably in health use of data public trust in in that use of data is critical at the moment and I cannot emphasize enough I think the importance of really good public engagement in understanding why it's important and how it can drive improvement so that we end up with a, not only a healthy debate but also really healthy understanding about the power of it so I'm in no doubt that it's going to be transformative I think our health service as so many around the world has some big hurdles to overcome to really realize the full potential having the right kind of IT infrastructure the right kind of trust levels in application of data and the really honest and transparent um, discussion as well about the balance of um, public data uh, or data used by public and also private companies which absolutely all are part of the mix but us having just that rounded discussion so that we understand its full value, we have the right infrastructure to be able to use and apply it and 
most importantly, I'd say public trust and confidence so that we can really get the most out of our investment. So, Michael, in your most optimistic scenario, do those who are working in healthcare start to also look like city planners, therapists, (laughs) dieticians, as well as doctors and nurses? Yeah, I used to go, let, let me pick up an English word, optimistic. Uh, I used to go around the world saying I was an evidence-based optimist. And a Brazilian colleague said to me in a thick Portuguese accent, Michael, you're using English incorrectly. I said, go on. He said, an optimist thinks that things will get better. You're not an optimist, you're hopeful. Okay, I thought that was quite a good distinction. So an optimi- if an optimist believes things will get better, I can't claim that I believe things will get better, but I'm really hopeful. And I'm hopeful for a variety of reasons. Firstly, well, not in necessarily in the right order, but as you know, in Britain, right across the country, that we're developing ICSs, integrated care systems. There's yet another reorganization of the NHS coming down the track, but this time it's integrating care and healthcare, social care and healthcare. And ICSs have been approaching me in Southeast London, in Cheshire and Merseyside, in East London and various places saying, How can we address social determinants of health? We recognize, you've convinced us, we recognize that it's not lack of health care that's causing ill health in the first place. It's the conditions in which people live, born, grow, live, work, and age. And what can we do working in the health and care system? So we're working with them around partnerships. Uh, What I've been saying to doctors and nurses is five things, education and training, seeing the patient in a broader perspective, the health system as employer, but I'd say more broadly, anchor institution, the impact on the people you employ, on the community where you work, as well as the goods and services that you create, partnership working and advocacy. And with the partnership, so Coventry, after my 2010 report, Uh, the Marmot Review, Coventry declared itself a Marmot City. And that means working right across local government, the police, the fire and rescue service, education, transport planning, and the care system. Then Greater Manchester said, well, if Coventry can be a Marmot City, maybe we can be a Marmot City region. And we produced our report on the 30th of June, Build Back Fairer in Greater Manchester, at how you can work right across the patch with the integrated care system, but with transport, education, early child development, employment opportunities. And that's spreading Cheshire and Merseyside, as I mentioned a moment ago, Cumbria and North Lancashire, North of Tyne combined authority. We've, we've been, but Leeds said, how can we become a Marmot city? Uh, we can't cope with the requests we're getting for this kind of joined up working between the integrated care system and 
other aspects of local government. And there's a negative and a positive reason for wanting to work at local level. The negative reason is if the central government can't or won't act on these things. I mean, the prime minister made his big leveling up speech. I've been really looking forward. I thought leveling up, great. Um, when we produced our Build Back Fair and Greater Manchester report, we said, here you are, prime minister. We've given you a blueprint. You want to level up? We've shown you what you need to do. And what does he do in his speech? He said, there are these huge health inequalities and nobody knows why they're there. What? Nobody knows why they're there. When he was asked in parliament what he was going to do about my report, firstly, the 10 years on report, and then the build back there, he said, oh, I respect Michael Marmot. We've worked together for a long time and be assured I will be implementing his recommendations. And he says, nobody knows why there are these big life expectancy gaps. So what does build back fairer mean? Building a few football pitches and tarting up some high streets. That's leveling up. So we really know what to do. So the negative reason for working with local government is if the central government neither knows nor cares, well, we've got to do it somewhere. The positive reason, um, wherever you stand on the devolution question and local government, uh, the positive reason is they're really in touch with the conditions in which people live and work. They know what it, the reality of people's lives. They know how important it is to be able to catch a bus, to get on a bus and go from A to B because the buses run and they're affordable, uh, to know what it means that your children will have good preschool provision and good schooling wherever you live and so on through the life course. And they really understand those things. So I'm really hopeful that we can make a difference with the way the care system uh, functions and that working in partnership with the other key parts of local government really can make a difference. Jim, may last word to you. Well, I'll borrow a phrase from Michael. I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that the conversation that we're having now around population health, tackling social determinants of health and health inequality, and some of the structures that we're putting in place, like the integrated care systems, data, as we've talked about, as well as, and I want to underline this, partnerships at a local level, public-private partnerships, partnerships across different players in the ecosystem, not just people coming in from health, is going to be very important if you're going to get serious about dealing with population health and creating healthier, longer living societies. Chin Mei, Charmaine and Michael, thank you very much for joining me.